Uh, I'm Ed Nersessian, director of the Helix Center. Uh, today's roundtable was uh, proposed and organized by Professor Schitz Johnson. Uh, before I introduce her, I'd just like to uh, remind you that our next roundtable is on November 17, and it's on animal language. Uh, Professor Sheet Johnson is a philosopher whose first life was a, as a dancer, choreographer, professor of dance, and dance scholar. Uh, okay. She has an ongoing courtesy professor appointment in the Department of Philosophy of Oregon University, University of Oregon, and she has published numerous articles and a number of books. Her books include the, Phenomenolo the Phenomenology of Dance, The Roots of Thinking, The Roots of Power, Animate Form and Gendered Bodies, The Roots of Morality, The Primacy of Movement, and The Corporeal Turn, an inter Interdisciplinary Reader. She received an MA in Dance and a PhD in Dance and Philosophy from the University of Wisconsin, where she also studied evolutionary biology. She was awarded a Distinguished Fellowship for her studies of xenophobia by the Institute of Advanced Study, Durham University, United Kingdom, in its inaugural year, the theme of which was the legacy of Charles Darwin. Uh, Professor Sheet Johnson will introduce the other guests and then we'll move on. Thank you. Well, thank you very much to all of you for being here. I would also like to thank uh, Ed Nersessian for all of his extraordinary hospitality. It has been a great pleasure to uh, be invited here and to have organized uh, this roundtable and to have gotten in touch with such illustrious people here. Um, whom I've just had the pleasure of, of meeting actually uh, at lunchtime and getting to know, except for Jim Lieberman, whom I've been in correspondence with for at least the past year. But um, I'd like to thank our participants also for coming. And um, because I have just had the pleasure of meeting them and I have not memorized their backgrounds, I'm going to just introduce them now to you. Um, this over here is Brian Ferguson. He's an anthropologist uh, who teaches at Rutgers University. Um, his main areas of interest are war and political violence. A generalist, he has published on war in tribal societies and among ancient states. Archaeological evidence regarding the origins of war, large-scale identity-linked violence in the contemporary world on human nature and war and anthropological theory about war. He is currently writing a book that examines theories about human nature and aggression through reports about chimpanzees in the wild. His other interests are culture and biology, policing, and the development of organized crime in New York history. So he has a very broad background that I'm sure is going to enrich our discussion, as is John Horgan's uh, uh, career as a writer, a science writer. He has written for a number of, of uh, journals and has been, his most recent book, End of War, which was published in 2012, has been called the best book I've ever read in a very long time by the journalist David Swanson. It was called a thoughtful, unflappable, closely argued book by novelist Nicholas Nicholson Baker. 
and a heartfelt and important book by evolutionary psychologist David Barrage. So um, he has also written for, I should say, he's a former senior writer at Scientific American and is currently a science journalist and director of the Center for Science Writings at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. Jim Lieberman is a psychiatrist who uh, is an emeritus professor at George Washington University. He was a practicing psychiatrist for many years. Uh, he served as chief at the Center for Child and Family Mental Health. Um, he has written extensively on the psychiatrist Otto Rank most recently editing The Letters of Sigmund Freud and Otto Rank, an inside, uh, inside Psychoanalysis, a book that received very high credits in a recent review. Other areas of interest are sex education and family planning, couples therapy, and nonviolent conflict resolution. Uh, he plays the cello in an orchestral group. And he has said that his firsthand experience in male-male competition includes chess and wrestling in high school and college and going through medical school at the University of California at San Francisco where within 82 classmates, 72 of them were male. So uh, we have a very fine bunch of, of uh, discussants here tonight. Uh, and what I want to do is start out with uh, a few remarks, introductory remarks, and from there we will go on to just a very unfolding discussion among us and uh, with questions and, and uh, confrontations maybe and elaborations among us. So uh, I start with just saying that little attention is paid to the fact that in his book, The Descent of Man, Selection and relation into, with re, relation to sex, Darwin devoted 12 chapters to male-male competition. He called it the law of battle, starting with mollusks and working his way up through avians, through mammals, devoting ultimately two chapters to man. Uh, the law is certainly not sanctioned or obeyed, by every male, but given human history, it appears an undeniable phenomenon all the same. Male-male competition warrants examination. It's buried in present-day research under the sobriquet of sperm competition, and it never surfaces as real male-male competition. And I myself devoted a chapter to real male-male competition in a book called The Roots of Morality. And I want to just uh, offer a few quotations from different people to give a kind of uh, idea of real-life male-male competition. First of all, Churchill said that nothing is... Churchill, Winston Churchill, said that there's nothing so exciting as to be shot at, shot at without result. <laughs> Ernst Becker, who wrote a book called The Denial of Death, said that if we don't have the omnipotence of gods, we can at least destroy like gods. 
Shakespeare in the Coriolanus wrote, one character said, this, these are lines from one of the characters, let me have war, say I, it exceeds peace as far as day does night. It's sprightly, waking, audible, and full of vent. Peace is a very apoplexy, lethargy, mold, sleepy, insensible, a getter of more bastard children than wars, a destroyer of men. And it makes men hate one another. Reason? Because then they less need one another. Then there's also a kind of poem by a religion scholar by the name of Sam Keane, who also has written uh, some, uh, something in science literature. It's called The Enemy. Start with an empty canvas. Sketch in broad outline the forms of men, women, and children. Dip into the unconscious well of your own disowned darkness with a wide brush and stain the strangers with the sinister hue of the shadow. Trace onto the face of the enemy the greed, the hatred, the carelessness you dare not claim as your own. When your icon of the enemy is complete, you will be able to kill without guilt, slaughter without shame. Finally, I'd like to quote Darwin. This is from uh, The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. He writes, man is the rival of other men. He delights in competition, and this leads to ambition, which passes too easily into selfishness. The thematic that will start our discussion, I hope, has to do with the idea that war is a, to my mind, a cultural elaboration of male-male competition which in a biological sense serves the reproduction, for the reproduction of the species. In other words, male-male competition in the biological world is a, is a sexual phenomenon that serves reproduction. My point will be that that male-male competition has been culturally elaborated by humans in various and sundry ways. But I'd like to start and ask, uh, because it has come up in our discussion at lunchtime and it served as a kind of introductory, Brian, if you want to start in with some remarks on male-male competition and war. Certainly. Um, well, Maxine and I, uh, there are many literatures to read, and your, your own thoughts and your work are shaped by the literature that you're involved in. And I've been working on the anthropology of war for quite a long time, and that involves both looking at ethnographic discussions of war, archaeological evidence, but also uh, responding to uh, and challenging some theories that I see coming out of primatology, chimp studies in particular, and also uh, evolutionary psychology. And in these areas, uh, those fields, Darwin's law of battle, not in that phrase, uh, is very prominent. And it's the foundation of lots of theorizing about conflict and, and more than that, in evolutionary psychology, the idea of an, 
unbroken continuum of uh, struggle between males, ultimately directed at reproductive success, is not only the image of our past, but it's the foundation for many other theories about uh, gender, the nature of different genders today, the inborn nature uh, on things like why we root for sports teams. Uh, many different theories are built upon it. And my own research finds that ethnographically, that is looking at tribal peoples that have been discussed, described since the time of Columbus and more recently by anthropologists, there's a tremendous amount of variation in terms of how much violence there is, how much warfare exists, how people respond to aggressive impulses, whether if you go from one society where one will be considered somehow not a man if one doesn't extract violent revenge on another man for uh, reflecting light from a mirror on uh, the other man's wife. That is an expectation, where in another society, this is South American Indian society, uh, there's a real uh, cultural disavowal of violence and uh, such that when occasionally they have to kill a witch, which occasionally they do, even the person who does that with the social sanction of it's got to be done, no one will ever share food from the same cup from that person again because they think they're irrevocably damaged inside. So there are real cultural variations. But archaeologically, I think what is important is that th there's many claims out there that the archaeological record shows uh, war is ubiquitous in our, in our prehistoric past. Those cases, uh, and I've done a lot of research on that and be happy to talk about it, those cases involve very selective presentation of the of uh, relatively few, uh, very few examples where signs of multiple violent death are present. And if you take uh, what I believe is a more proper methodology of looking at the entire archaeological record of, say, uh, Europe or the Near East, which I've just completed research on, what you find is uh, an utter absence of signs of war in the earliest record. Then it begins sporadically in different places and gets more common until eventually you get to the Copper Age or so. Uh, when war is is ubiquitous, of course, Europe. It, it's our image of Conan the Barbarian, but you see it develop over time, and it's not there to start. What I think is one of the most important findings of this research is that in one particular area of the Near East, which is known as the Southern Levant, and this is an area that goes from Lebanon, uh, southern Syria, uh, Jordan, and Israel, uh, very different from the record today, that while you've got evidence of war in all other areas of the Near East and all through Europe, abundant evidence of war, there's not a single case that you can say war existed in a period that goes from 13,000 BC to well, 13,000 BC to about 3,200 BC, about 10,000 years. Uh, 10,000 years without a single documentable case of war. And I think the reason for that is that they found, these are the people who domesticated plants and animals, and I think they domesticated conflict, and I think that there are signs that they had developed a peace system. So I think that's an optimistic note, but it also to me says that the Darwin's law of battle doesn't necessarily apply to uh, cultural beings. And I know your writing talks a lot about culture and, and uh, humanity and how people try to distance themselves, you know, the, the, the idea that humans are above uh, the animal kingdom. 
this is looking at culture as an emergent domain uh, that has different ways of processing conflicts. So that's what I work on, and that's what I'm, my kind of response to your uh, topic here. Okay, John, do you want to add to that? Um, yeah, so first I want to say that Brian is somebody who got me interested in, in the issue of war, and especially the roots of war. Um, and and uh, that culminated in my writing this book, The End of War, which just came out earlier this year. And um, I actually wanted to ask this uh, audience a, a question by way of, of setting up uh, what I have to say. Um, one of the reasons that I, I wrote The End of War was because of uh, my perception of public attitudes toward war. So here's my question for all of you. How many of you think that it is possible for humanity to stop fighting wars once and for all someday? So a world without war between nations and, and without even the threat of war, world peace, permanent world peace. How many of you think such a world is possible? Okay, this is fairly typical. What, that's maybe seven or eight people out of out of maybe, I don't know, 50 or 60. It's, so I've been asking this question um, at every opportunity for about 10 years now. And, uh, and usually between 80 and 90% of uh, respondents say war is a permanent part of the human condition. Um, my students, I teach at a college in uh, Hoboken, it tends to be more 90, 95%. I've, I've had classes where every single student said that um, and not only uh, will there not be world peace, but hell no, there won't be world peace. They're adamant on this issue. They think that it's really naive to believe that humans can stop fighting uh, wars once and for all. Let me ask you another question. How many of you think that there is a strong biological component, um, and even more than that, that, that war somehow is an expression of human nature? War is an expression of human nature. So that means that some of you uh, who think that war is inevitable um, maybe see other reasons as uh, significant. I wrote my book, first of all, because I think that the view that war is an expression of new human nature, that it's really ancient and innate, this is what uh, Brian was talking about, is wrong empirically, that there is massive evidence to show that war is actually a quite recent cultural um, innovation. It started really, the oldest evidence is maybe 13,000 years old, this mass grave uh, in the Sudan. Uh, but really the evidence starts um, about 10,000 years ago in Mesopotamia and then you see it arise in other parts of the world. And, and some people object that, well, we don't have any evidence of humans doing anything before 10,000 years ago. And that's obviously false because we have evidence of the emergence of, uh, of art and, and music and religion religion and all sorts of other uh, cultural innovations going back tens of thousands of years before uh, the origin of war. And what concerns me about um, the, the fatalism uh, toward uh, warfare is that it can become uh, self-fulfilling. And I see signs of that um, in the world today. Uh, Barack Obama, when he was accepting his Nobel Peace Prize, um, and I think uh, 
I, I think he, you know, you can say this of him. I think he felt guilty that he was accepting it right after he'd announced he was sending 30,000 more troops to Afghanistan. He recognized that that was a little bit embarrassing. But he had a statement to the effect, and I'm pretty sure you've seen this, Brian, um, that uh, war appeared with the first man. And we will not eradicate violent conflict in our lifetime. So he's making a scientific statement there. I'm not sure if he had been reading the, uh, the literature on warfare written by, especially for some reason, a bunch of uh, very prominent scientists at Harvard. I call them the Harvard Hawks. So this is Edward Wilson, Steven Pinker, uh, Richard Wrangham, Stephen LeBlanc, people like that. But uh, this idea that war is in our genes somehow has become very pervasive, and I think it has led to uh, an easy excuse for our own uh, hawkishness and, uh, and militarism. So first of all, it's empirically wrong, and second, it uh, has uh, bad consequences in the world today. But don't you think that there is a difference between saying that it's in your genes and saying that it's a cultural elaboration of something that is naturally there? Because the other thing is that indication is that I think the distinction needs to be made between using the term humans and using the term male-male competition because normally, uh, as far as history goes, it's not women who start wars and it's not women who fight wars. So you have to really make the distinction between male-male uh, competition within a biological framework that serves reproduction and male-male competition that has become culturally elaborated by humans more recently, I agree, more recently, in the service of honing heroes, cultivating warriors who will fight, etc. And I think that, uh, that those two distinctions really need to be made because it's not that I don't think that war is in our genes. I, I think that that's like a completely false and aberrant notion. I think on the contrary, as per Samuel Keene's poem that I read, uh, it requires some very deep self-questioning on the part of all humans in terms of their own predilections and own dispositions toward violence and toward uh, uh, just an awareness of their own, um, we'll just say, uh, their own morality with respect to other humans. What do you think, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of thoughts here. Um, I grew up with uh, movies like Bataan and Corregidor, uh, which the Americans were emptying their machine guns at the oncoming Japanese. Uh, and it took uh, until after World War II for a new finding to emerge. General S.L.A. Marshall found that most of the soldiers on both sides and in previous wars were not firing their weapons at an oncoming enemy. If they could see the person, they would be less likely to shoot. 80% would not shoot. Then they looked back at uh, stashes of weapons found uh, in uh, battlefields of, uh, for example, the Civil War, and they found these rifles that were muscle-loaded, were multiply loaded. They were soldiers feigning pulling the trigger when they were not being supervised because the oncoming enemy was an inhibition. And uh, this, uh, these findings have been elaborated 
by Dave Grossman in two books on killing, uh, which uh, I think came out in, in 1995 with the second edition revised in 2009, and also he wrote on combat. He was a lieutenant colonel and trainer of troops at uh, West Point, now retired. And he said that um, after World War II, while the uh, General Marshall's uh, findings were, were hotly disputed by, by military people, it's now been established, but it's also been established that uh, normal men can be trained to shoot. First of all, uh, if they're supervised closely. Second, if the shooting is at a distance where the face of the enemy is not coming toward you. And so many more military casualties are inflicted on retreating troops than on advancing troops. Uh, the other thing that's happened, of course, is that distance killing has been increased. The weaponry has been increased. It's easier to drop a nuclear weapon on a city than it is to shoot somebody whose eyes you can see. So it turns out that just as we have learned something about uh, human nature being less violent than we thought, we also have the capability to, to be much more destructive than we could in the past. So this is the dilemma, the, the conundrum of, of the present. Uh, Grossman says that of recruits nowadays uh, uh, to the military, uh, they can now, with special training methods developed since World War II, but prior to Vietnam, you can convert the 80% or the 90% so that 90% now will fire and did fire at human targets facing them in Vietnam. And Vietnam was also the beginning of a strong attention to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and a high suicide rate in, in returning veterans and in uh, active soldiers. So there's a lot of psychology that we have to uh, struggle with in this, uh, but uh, in a way I think it's, it's progress. If we can save ourselves from the big instruments of killing. Uh, when I was growing up there was a draft and uh, in order to be a conscious objector you had to show that you were a good Quaker or a member of the Brethren Church or whatever. Uh, Catholics had a hard time, although there was a Catholic peace movement and so on. And then uh, the, the draft ended, and so uh, there's uh, really no need for anyone who hates war to sign up. But it's interesting that when you sign up now, if you enlist, you have to sign a statement saying that you are not a conscientious objector, which probably makes sense, except the people who are signing up now were not raised brethren or Quakers. They don't know what conscientious objector is really about until they get into the training and then a lot of them crash. And so there's, a, there's an organization called the Center on Conscience and War which gives legal counseling to people who have signed a statement saying they're not a CO and then they find out that they are. The, the derivative uh, of this also is that Dave Grossman says there may not be uh, atheists in the foxholes but there are a lot of conscientious objectors. <laughs> Any comments on that? Well, it's um, this is an issue that's uh, come up uh, a number of times. I've, I've come across it. Um, Grossman's work, uh, Marshall's work, is is something that I've, I find very uh, 
congenial. I, I like the idea that humans don't that, that humans do have an inhibition against killing. Um, I just haven't been able to uh, determine that by looking at the ethnographic record uh, of other societies. What I, I've, I've looked, there's, it's really a, a gap in what anthropologists do when they study war of asking people, how do you feel about uh, having killed somebody? Uh, they look at the acts of war, they look at what leads to war. Uh, they don't ask many questions like that. Now what's interesting is that uh, a number of societies have some kind of uh, ritual that involves uh, segregating the man-killers after they've come back uh, for a period of time and purifying them before they go back into their normal daily life. And if someone, like the Yanomami, I've written about the Yanomami, this is a tribal group in Brazil uh, and Venezuela. If you don't go through that ritual, <clears throat> the feeling is that you begin to rot inside. Uh, and if too much time has happened between, like if you're in a raid that takes two weeks to get back from, you might begin to feel the sensations of rotting inside before you get home. So this goes along with that very definitely. But there's a group of people called the Ilongot in, uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, and an anthropologist, and they uh, were headhunters, and the anthropologist queried them deeply about uh, whether they felt uh, shame uh, or anything like that for killing, and, and just couldn't elicit anything like that at all. So the problem for me is that it hasn't been really studied. I, I don't feel comfortable in making any kind of generalizations, but I can't say that I find Grossman's finding to be backed up, maybe just because no, there hasn't been enough work on it. It seems that a lot of societies, I mean, and in United States societies, in United States society, uh, unless you're in a military family, and that's some people who work uh, with soldiers are now talking about the military class, you know, very unselfconsciously. These are people who know this is what you're going to do when you get to be of that age. Someone like me who wasn't, the idea of killing anybody at any time was just uh, uh, impossible. Something you could see on a screen, but not something you would ever contemplate doing yourself. But in some other societies, it's kids are raised with the idea of when you grow up, you're going to have to fight, and uh, and you you should want to fight. So I just don't know how much this is a human thing and how much this is a cultural thing. And you know, the male male competition can be expressed in nonviolent ways as well. And and Absolutely. you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't disown female, female competition. I, I went to high school, you know, and... and uh, you have a daughter. Yeah, that's right, so... Um, but there's, there's, a, there's, a there's gender stereotyping, too, that goes on of, you know, male competition means you punch him in the face, and female competition means you say you ruin their reputation. Uh, so that's, you know, that's what you expect. I, I think... Um, in my book, I, I remind people that before we got into this age of, uh, of uh, genetic determinism and fascination with biological uh, contributions to um, human nature, um, there was much more interest in uh, cultural um, explanations for what we do. I think that Margaret Mead still had one of the, the best theories of war. She wrote a little paper, came out in 1940. Uh, I think the title was something like War uh, is an Invention, Not a uh, Biological Necessity, and talked about war as an idea that people had to um, invent. And then it, um, 
And then it propagates just as many other ideas do, uh, marriage and, and cooking and trial by jury and a lot of the things that actually have improved our lives. The problem with war is that it's got this bizarre property of uh, spreading whether or not people want it. And you, you can sort of think of how that happens in a very simple way. If you've got a, a region with 10 peaceful tribes and, and there's just one tribe in the middle, let's say it, it just happens to have a charismatic sociopath as its leader who thinks that fighting other people would be a really fun thing to do, and that tribe starts attacking the others, what are they going to do? They either can run away or uh, they submit to the, uh, to the aggressive tribe or they fight against it. And in this way, uh, warlike behavior and militarism spread. And the, the anthropologist uh, Sarah Blaffer Hurdy has written in a way that I find really persuasive about um, how this process transformed societies around, you know, beginning around 10,000 years ago, the, the time period that uh, we talked about, and how um, it's because war actually and mass killing does not come naturally to uh, to people that we started to uh, come up with these cultural norms that uh, glorified uh, martial skills and killing and courage and uh, and all the, this sort of thing. And so war transformed culture and it actually uh, created the kind of macho model of uh, masculinity that a lot of people now think is completely um, innate. So. Um, so I think culture actually is by far a more powerful explanation of war. I think uh, that to understand something like the, the you know, Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan or even uh, or the aggression of the United States, um, you can go back to the experiments of Stanley Milgram, the old the classics yeah. in social psychology where it's conformity and deference to authority that right. leads people to commit horrific acts even when they are revulsed by them. So the, right. the Milgram ex in the Milgram experiments, a lot of those subjects who thought that they were shocking people possibly um, lethally, I'm assuming that everybody right. here is familiar yeah. with those, they were extremely distressed and in some, you know, some were sadistic and were quite happy to do it. But a lot of people were very distressed by it and they did it anyway just because this guy in a white coat was telling them to do this. So this, I think, is actually a more disturbing fact about, about our, our uh, makeup than any kind of you know, innate uh, propensity for war that we are so malleable, we are so subject to the influence of, uh, of people in power. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a great um, uh, motivation for people if there is a, it's like Hitler's Thousand Year Reich, mobilizing people because there's a leader there who is, who is charismatic enough to propel people to take up their guns, et cetera, and, and go fight for the glory of, of their nation. But I think also in present day times, there's uh, an equal, it's not only national, but it's religious, and the religious is feeding in, in the same way that the national did. And I think, on the other hand, that which we haven't mentioned, is the development of technology, which makes it so easy to uh, decimate an enormous, I mean, a whole nation, practically, um, in terms of just technological developments, aside from the drones, which can target smaller, but I was thinking of nuclear power. 
in the, uh, the spread of nuclear power. Grossman uh, makes the point that about 3% of the recruits had no compunction about uh, these exercises or actual killing. And he also uh, points to the fact that uh, demographically about 3% of the population uh, would uh, qualify as psychopathic, which means not having a normal conscience, sense of responsibility, or empathy. And it turns out that this is not a disabling psychiatric condition. It may be, and there are far more uh, people uh, with that diagnosis in prison than their numbers would warrant. That is to say, there might be 40% of prisoners in, in uh, penitentiaries who would qualify. But um, I recall hearing that the Nazi extermination machine was run by 3% of the population. And it's probably true when people say, I, I didn't know a thing about it, that in fact, most of the Germans didn't know about it. But uh, it, that 3% can be very significant. Also, the media like to play up the abnormal. So you hear a lot more about uh, violence and, and sadism and craziness of, of this type or uh, uh, unscrupulous behavior than is represented in the population. And I think that there's, this wouldn't be the case if somebody didn't have an interest in portraying human beings like this, whether it's to sell newspapers or to sell uh, machine guns or uh, to sell police uniforms or to, to, to make uh, purchase of guns legal, so things like that. I just, I'd just like to add something to that, um, that uh, war turns people into virtual psychopaths. I think we've seen that over and over again. I, I suspect that there were, there were more than 3% of the, the uh, German population who, if they didn't participate directly in, in uh, genocide, would have been willing to do so because they'd basically been brainwashed. If, you know, I've read detailed accounts of what happened at My Lai, um, you know, the, the massacre in, in Vietnam War, and it's, it, and it's, it's mass psychopathy. Uh, it's, it's people who are transformed by the culture of war into monsters who have absolutely um, no normal human uh, concern for others and end up slaughtering, brutalizing women and children completely. Uh, they even killed all the animals in, in, uh, in My Lai. And you see this over and over again through, through human history. And I think that uh, the obvious solution is to try to, you know, it's the old idea of, of we have to recognize that uh, war is is uh, morally wrong. It's also practically it's it often devastates societies. I think our society is a lot of our economic problems are directly attributable to these uh, huge, uh, costly, lengthy wars that we've had in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. And uh, and I'm hopeful that finally, once and for all, we can have this kind of cultural um, awakening and recognize how wrong militarism and war are and put it behind us once and for all. Again, with the help of this kind of how cultural you, malleability. How do you do that without a moral education? Well, I think it will require... I, I'm certainly working on my students, believe me. They, they, but how, uh, how, in what way? 
I tell them first of all about um, the, that I think that the uh, theories of war um, that attribute it to biology are wrong because many of them uh, believe in that. I also talk a lot about um, the second most popular theory, I'm sure a lot of people uh, here believe it, is um, that war is the inevitable result of uh, too many people and too few resources. So it's, it's kind of ecological competition. Brian has, has written about uh, this quite a bit. There's a, uh, an archaeologist at Harvard, Stephen LeBlanc, who's, who's uh, written a book on this. Um, and it's a very popular theory right now, especially, and I'm really, I find this really sort of disturbing, among green progressives, dovish green progressives who fear that overpopulation um, and uh, global warming are, are going to come together to cause terrible uh, scarcity in the future, famines and, and water shortages that are going to lead to catastrophic wars. I read this all the time. Bill McKibben, the, the uh, leading environmental activist, has written about it. And the problem is that there's just no empirical evidence for that point of view. Uh, the evidence really strongly suggests that um, you sometimes uh, resources uh, play a role, and, and some countries, Imperial Japan was looking for more secure sources of uh, fossil fuels. But generally, it's war, it's the old idea of war begetting war. Cultures of, uh, of war, militarized cultures, find reasons to go um, to war. And if there's anything that is positive out of seeing war as this kind of self-perpetuating meme, it's that we don't have to do anything radical to our society as a means to ending war. We just have to end war. We have to focus on ending war and militarism uh, themselves. But how, how, how do you do that? Just, we'll have questions from the audience in like, uh, just in a little bit. I just want to keep going around. Brian, did you have a comment? Well, I think that uh, I, I agree with John that it's an, uh, an important point that we, we go, the question John asked before is how many people believe war can be abolished in the future um, is really, I think, the second question to ask. And the first question is how many people believe that war has always been with us? If you believe that war has always been with us, I think the second question that's always going to be with us kind of follows naturally. The thing that I'm finding uh, in, in my archaeological research, not one thing that's very important is that across the board there's an absence of war when you had highly mobile people, uh, even in the beginnings of agriculture. And it's, war isn't necessarily linked totally to agriculture. You had war before agriculture. You had a lot of agriculture without war. But that you could have one area that could go for 10,000 years uh, through periods of population crashes when population had grown during favorable conditions and then unfavorable conditions led to drastic reductions in the populations in the area. Classic Malthusian problems. Still no signs of war. And what I didn't mention before is that this isn't a case of, well, you just haven't found the evidence for this because this period continues up to 3200 BC what happened in 3200 BC is that this is when the pharaohs arose in Egypt and began a colonial empire in uh, what they call Canaan. And in a matter of 100 years, every settlement in Canaan was fortified. You can't find a single fortification for 10,000 years before that. Then you can't find one without fortification after that. So it's not 
just the recovery of evidence. This shows that you can have a system, even when there are resource conflicts, even when there's, there's environmental disasters, where the result isn't going to war. And I think if people know that, that's step one. Step two, and this is one of the reasons I, I spend so much time challenging a lot of uh, biological theories of war is I think it distracts attention to where you should look. And where you should look, I think, considering modern warfare, the wars after the fall of the Soviet Union, can, tribal warfare, is in the, the self-interest of uh, leaders. I think that this is the, the key to understanding war. Not the genes of everybody, but what's the interest of leaders? And take resources. There's, uh, we had, uh, there was a, a conference, we had some uh, post-Soviet scholars there talking about the, the conflicts that were erupting all over the former Soviet Union, ethno-political conflicts. Land is always an issue. It's never a question of uh, land to farm. There's got plenty of land to farm. Sometimes it's oil, but land was always big because leaders were rising to power on the claims of this is our homeland. This is symbolic to us. And they were benefiting uh, by these pleas, by these, these, the, this, this constructed history uh, that uses land as a symbol of us against them who've always taken it away from us. And to me, this is where you need to look. Who is making the decisions for war? What are their interests in that particular situation? And then what I think makes humans particularly dangerous is that once leaders have, and it's not inevitable that leaders are going to argue for war, that they see that as their interest, but once they do, um, they come to believe their own propaganda. They come to believe their, the, their own reasons that they put out there for why it's not just something we need, it's right, it's moral. Uh, you're a coward if you don't. Uh, this is how they convince people, but I think through to avoid cognitive dissonance, they come to believe it themselves. And it's important to look away from wars in your genes or what chimpanzees are doing uh, to what leaders are doing now who might say there's always going to be war. Do you think that, uh, I'm yeah, sorry, surely. fluidity in the way you are moving from male-male competition, aggression, violence, genocide, and war. But these are not all the same. It may no. be that you have to have aggression in war, but these are different uh, categories of things. Uh, the second thing is that it seems to me more often uh, than saying something is moral in matters of war is that people are scared and they go to war. They tell them there is a threat. So uh, let's say the situation with Iraq was that there is a nuclear threat from Iraq. That's why we have to go to war. Afghanistan is because of Al-Qaeda. That's why we have to go to war. So, and that seems to me, in a way, a normal reaction to the extent that when we feel we are threatened, we want to defend ourselves. And that's why I'm a little bit puzzled by the uh, period you are saying for 10,000 years there was no war. 
is that those people were not threatened. There was no danger. There were no... No, because there was no one going to war in the area. No, but there must have been threats. There must have been... Why must there, why must there have been threats? Because food may be scarce, uh, weather may be bad in one place and excellent in another place, so they have a lot of uh, food That's to eat. That's all true. And so how did they deal with those? They if, deal with those apparently through cooperative responses. They had centers where redistribution, we can find the centers of redistribution where people from different areas came together. They had cultic centers that united vast areas of communal labor from people without residences around them. People were coming from different areas. How they handled these things is really the question, I believe. Uh, so it's, that's a great question, but the, what I would suggest is that you're, you're exemplifying the inevitability of violent conflict and the record doesn't show it. And it's, it's, again, it's not that it's so long ago you can't find it. If you go to the northern Tigris at the same area, if you go to Anatolia at the same area, abundant evidence of war. But in this area, there isn't any. So this poses a question, what were they doing differently? And this is an area where domestication began. This is where they began to, where they went from wild to cultivated plants and wild to domesticated animals. And what I believe they did is somehow uh, developed a peace system. One of, one of the things we know in anthropology, we figured out in anthropology, is that the, the causes of war are one thing, but there is a separate set of variables that you could call causes of peace. And they're not the same. Causes of peace include things like uh, uh, interchange between different areas, uh, cooperative activities joining different groups, uh, the recognition of some kind of uh, social authority that can say no to violence, uh, effective means of conflict resolution, and a value system that says you don't resort to violence. That's not the factors that lead to war, which you can say are resource scarcity, social hierarchy, a bunch of other things, but they're different, and together they make different kinds of combinations. Going back to the male-male uh, issue, one of the things that's intriguing about the Southern Levant, not definitive, but intriguing, is that there isn't any sign, uh, basically looking at burials and art, of a male oriented hierarchy. There isn't sign of a gender hierarchy there, which is very intriguing, but I just don't know enough because I don't know about other areas in the Near East where there was war, whether they had signs of a gender hierarchy or not. The article was about the Southern Levant, but goes along with what you're saying here. So there were threats, there were dangers, uh, there, there was population crashes, but when there was population crashes there, you don't find war where in the Northern Tigris area, you do. So there's something about the way people handled it culturally. So if there were two tribes and they had some dispute because uh, somebody stole a girl from one tribe and the tribe went to fight with them and get the girl back, uh, would you have considered that war or you yes, have some other definition of war? No, that's, that's what you would call war among the Yanomami. They didn't do that. Uh, the issue is how did they avoid it? And if they had some kind of mechanism for resolving the dispute, you've got a beef and here's how we're going to handle it. That's what you might infer. You don't have the evidence of it and people haven't really looked for the evidence of it yet. Uh, somehow it was handled. So the 
it's not that this was sweetness and light, the people didn't have problems, it's that they found a way to do it. Now, why wouldn't one tribe, like John's idea of uh, one tribe is led by this sociopath, if you have a, a kind of a, a, a local world system of people who, as you had in these areas, who are a mess in trade and intermarriage and movement, uh, common ritual and all of these things, your life is dependent of being on a part of this system. And someone who says to his followers, uh, let's go out and kill all of them, uh, well, it might be very difficult to get a following to do that when people would say, are you crazy? Then they'll never trade with us again. Uh, then we'll never be able to marry with them again. Then they won't, we won't be able to go to the ceremonies. Are you crazy? It, Oh, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll make an exception. You have to wait until we have the questions. Oh. Oh, you ask questions. Because I need to Male-male competition. Let me... May I make an exception, Ed, because he's raised his hand several times. Okay. Is that all right? Okay. Okay. First of all... The problem is we can't... We have to walk up here. Oh. Okay. So could you just wait five minutes? Okay. Okay. Um, I'll still be here. <laughs> um, this is. Um, I wanted to bring. Go ahead, Jim. Did you want to say something? It'll be a slightly different topic, but go ahead. Okay, because I wanted to follow this up a little bit because, in some ways, uh, this leads into globalization and the fact that we're living in a global world where there are more and more people to, uh, that we interact with. And um, it seems to me that uh, it's, it's really interesting to me that Jung, Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, uh, never, never included strangers within his archetypal uh, system. And strangers are very much... Um, uh, present in non-human as well as human uh, animal societies. In other words, a stranger is recognized as someone who doesn't belong to our group, and they are treated in a very different different way. And it seems to me that with globalization, that uh, there are fewer and fewer strangers now, and more and more enemies or potential enemies because they either don't believe like we do or they have goods that we want that uh, they're not willing to send us and et cetera, et cetera. So it seems to me that with globalization, I mean, you're talking about a, a small area here where people can interact. And the thing that it seems to me that one of the things that, that compounds the problem is the fact that there are different, so many different languages now. I mean, in terms of English has become kind of standard, but still that's an imposition on people who don't speak English, that they have to, they have to learn English and it's not their native language. So there are a lot of ways in which this kind of communal coming together with tribal people is in this global world that we live in, is it's, it's a, an exacerbated problem. And um, it doesn't seem to me that we're able to grapple with it uh, in some kind of moral way because it's so focused on economics and not on humanness and on recognizing 
this this uh, poem by at least it made an impression on, on me this uh, this really delving into ourselves and coming to grips with the person that we are and our own uh, aggressive or violent or greedy or selfish proclivities until we come in contact with that and I would also agree with with Ed's comment about fear because fear is a very very basic human emotion and, and with respect to strangers, fear is a very, uh, is definitive emotion. And it seems to me when that's uh, magnified into when strangers become enemies or potential enemies, then fear is also uh, magnified. I just, I just want to try to... Um to uh, lay my optimism on on everybody again, especially because I, I, that was that was slightly uh, dark the way you were describing uh, globalization. One thing that has happened: you read some quotes about war um, that glorified war and uh, that talked about war. At, you know, you can find quotes from Teddy Roosevelt and people like that that makes war sound like absolutely the coolest thing that you can do, the ultimate extreme sport. Right? Yeah. You don't have world leaders talking in those terms anymore. Um, war is, uh, is sometimes necessary, but, it, but it's a necessary evil. That's how uh, war is discussed. Even though, of course, there's jingoism and, and drum beating uh, well, when we go about, to war. What about Ahmadinejad? Uh, Ahmadinejad, from what I've read, also talks about defending his country against aggressors, not glorifying war for its own sake, which is something that I associate with social Darwinism, late 19th century, early 20th century. Then we had World War I, and then we had World War II, which shattered any of these r romantic notions that we had about war. And but what about North Korea? Then I mean, there are a lot of countries. But that these are countries that justify their own militarism in terms of fear, not in terms of some kind of positive goal of uh, conquest for its own sake, as a kind of uh, ultimate expression of of uh, vitality. But I just want to give you some empirical okay. evidence that I think we are learning our lesson that war is. Um, th that war is destructive. It also often undermines our goals. So war leads to resource scarcity instead of resource scarcity leading to war. So you probably know I wrote about this, but also Steven Pinker in um, Angels of Our Better uh, Nature. Um, we are now in a, one of the most peaceful periods in recent human history. So uh, war casualties, population has been going like this, but war casualties over the last decade globally have been about uh, one-tenth what they were annually in the second half of the 20th century and about one-hundredth what they were in the first half of the 20th century. And I think, you know, there are some scholars say it's, you know, we're, we're just looking at random fluctuations. I think we're seeing signs of humanity learning its lesson and moving beyond militarism. There's one huge glaring exception to that, and I think it's the United States, which is by far the most warlike country in, in the world right now, has a, has a military budget as big as all other nations combined, is now constantly developing new technologies such as drones that are leading to new arms races. Everybody else wants drones now, of course. Terrorist groups are already acquiring 
drones. Are, we're the biggest arms dealer in the world. I think if the United States can uh, recognize its own militarism and how we are, are harming our security with these policies, that, uh, that the world could become uh, demilitarized quite rapidly. Okay, may I ask a question? Okay. Economically, Militarism is very, uh, makes the U.S. prosperous. No, uh, that's not Isn't true. Isn't that true? No, it's not. Militarism, the, the, if you look at the Fortune 500, uh, I, Lockheed Martin is, I don't know, 45 or 50 among the biggest corporations in the world. Lockheed Martin is the biggest defense contractor in the world. But, they are dwarfed by Google and Apple and Amazon and, uh, and Walmart and, and uh, companies like that that actually don't want war. They will benefit off war if they have to. Yeah, but I'm talking about, for example, I just heard recently that, for example, in the state of Virginia, Virginia has a lot, built a lot of naval vessels. Yes. And they don't want to stop building naval vessels because it's a very highly, I mean, it's a very good thing for them to be building naval vessels. So there's something about the military in terms of the production of, of, Equipment and and of all kinds. That Definitely, I bet the military-industrial complex. Yeah, Eisenhower which Eisenhower. But what I'm saying right. is that exactly. for this, our you. society as a whole, um, the health of those companies is not the same as the health of our nation as a whole. The military-industrial complex, for the amount of money that we invest in it, is a lousy producer of jobs. It's, it's minuscule compared to the jobs we get from investment in healthcare and education and energy and things like that. I just wish, I think there is enormous potential right now for a, uh, a really large peace coalition. If you have a, a, a politician with the guts and the eloquence to point out how crazy militarism is for our society and for the world as a whole. And that the military-industrial complex, sure, Lockheed Martin is going to try as hard as it can to keep the defense budget up and be selling its stuff right. around the world, but uh, we have to recognize that their interests are not shared by the rest of us. It's a much lower multiplier effect for government money going into military spending than into other things. It, it, it doesn't promote prosperity in the same way that non-military spendings. But I would like to say one thing about fear before we, and, and who else, and, and I'll stop it. The, the, the Iraq war is very instructive, I think. Uh, this was generated fear. Uh, the, this was something that was basically, uh, the, the intelligence on this was of the flimsiest sort, about the weapons of mass destruction. Uh, the evidence that this was part of a, uh, a geopolitical strategy of a small group of people uh, as uh, the way the United States should project its power in the Near East and elsewhere is very strong. Uh, and. The, one of the most intriguing things is very, shortly after this war, I was talking to someone who was the um, was head of the New Yorker's uh, Washington Bureau at the time. And as they were going into the Iraq war, when everybody had decided they were going into the war before the shooting started, but it was a foregone conclusion, the phrase went around that they had to moral it up. They had to uh, moral it up. And that's where the democracy thing came in. And, and this was a very clear idea. We, we can't just use the fear. We've got that, but we've got to moral it up. And so this is where you've got to be skeptical about leaders, because leaders very often are the ones who generate the fear. Yeah. 
Uh, let me just say that, because then we'll, we'll open it up to the audience, but I just want to ask Jim if you had any other comment about this. It's removed, so why don't we open it up? Okay. Um, yes. I thank you for uh, really providing some very stimulating... A little bit louder. I'm sorry, I have a partially paralyzed vocal cord, and this is all I can do. Maybe closer to the mic. But I, th I thank you all for your comments, which I think have been very stimulating. I feel like it's a lot more complicated than the issues that you've mentioned. Um, power and control, I think, are almost, if not actually, instinctual. Um, I think that uh, the human being uh, has impulses to hurt. Um, I just heard a patient tell me, a patient I've known a long time, just told me the, for the first time that when he was four to five years old, he remembers dropping kittens down the stairwell of his building, then holding them underwater until the bubble stopped. Now, I understand that some of this kind of behavior is a result of the trauma that he'd experienced earlier, but there's a lot of that that's out there. There's a lot of people that love Schottenfraut. Okay? And I think that's very important, and I think that's, that's something that I think may, may be instinctual and is not something that's educated. I don't think that a three- or four-year-old boy has been, has been uh, culturated to uh, kill cats or, uh, or dissect insects or break the heads off of chickens. I think there's something instinctual there. Well, that's pathological behavior. It's it, not normal. Is it? I mean, my experience, I was a boy myself. I don't remember. Well, uh, well, I would my... say, well, I would say, what is the norm? You see, what I would say is that you didn't do it. That doesn't mean that you were in the majority. I think I was. Well, you think you were, but I'm not sure you were. Okay. Because okay. okay. you think you were doesn't mean you were. I think the sadistic child fits well into the 3% or the yeah. 10% who are abnormal. Yeah, but I think there's more than 3%. I really do. Yeah, because Churchill would fit look, into the three percent. Look, how many hundreds of thousands of people fill our football stadiums every year? That's the more than three percent. Okay, our soccer stadiums. If you go around the world, it's more than three percent. Yeah, but soccer, soccer is not sadistic. Football is, I grant you. Well, you know, it depends on how you play soccer and which team you're following and which player you're talking about. I wouldn't say that soccer is necessarily not sadistic. So I think that, that there's something about, there's also part of the reason for, for competition, a male competition in war is castration anxiety. We have to prove that we're not vulnerable. And we deal with that by trying to castrate somebody else. And this is a different level than you all have been talking about. I'm a Freudian analytic therapist, so this is the level that I think about many things at. And uh, so I just think that there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a more basic element. Now, our speaker here says there's no war for 10,000 years. You know something? I don't know how that could be right. I understand that you spent 20 years researching that, 
But I think there's either something you're missing or something you don't understand. Well, I just that. cannot believe that there, had, there was That's hostility. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You don't know anything about the area, yet you know the history better than someone who's gone through the entire archaeological record of this, gone through every reputed case, looked at every instance that's supposed well, to show Well, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm wrong. Well, it, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm wrong. By any you don't common know what standard you're of wrongness about. and rightness, you are wrong. <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm right. Okay. okay. I would yeah, just... Next, yeah. next question. Hi. Um, my name is Ben Roth. Um, I'm also a group therapist, as well as being analytically trained. I've been working for 10 years since 9-11 on... Uh, Psycho uh, group therapies, avoidance of uh, talking about violent groups um, as part of a correction. Uh, not everybody fired at Milai. There was one platoon that didn't fire. Uh, this comes from Bob Lifton, who I've spoken with. Uh, they had recently lost their sergeant, who was very beloved as a caretaker, and they were in mourning. And of the people that responded as a group, the only group that didn't fire at me lie was this group had, had recently lost their sergeant. Also, as a correction, Milgram's uh, experiments did not require lethal. Uh, that's one of the criticisms of Milgram's study is that it was painful, not lethal. The, the top, at the top of the dial, uh, the people were told that it could be life-threatening, and the it could be life-threatening. The actor right. said, "I think I'm having a heart attack, or had some right. kind." Well, it was there's, a, there's a difference, and then he went silent. Yeah. So the subjects thought that the that the I person might be that, unconscious. But it's not the same as pulling a switch in Auschwitz. Um, my interest is in genocide, which is a particular form of killing, mass killing. Um, and that is usually derived from war, but I want to tell you about a French group therapist who might support some of your findings. He essentially says all groups are established to establish security first, that that's the main goal, and to have free transactions among the group. It's only when that is disrupted in some form and there is no mechanism for dealing with it that a group will become violent. And one of the ways that groups become violent is to find an other, and other is defined as somebody not like the main characteristics of the group. It's not quite a stranger, uh, because a stranger can be brought in and can be educated, but the other, otherization seems to be a group phenomena, which is used uh, uh, was used by Solomon Ash in the German studies mm -hmm. by creating otherization. And if you hear and analyze Hitler's speeches, I haven't done it, but I just uh, discussed and uh, contempt for another person or another group was the central issue of how Hitler spoke about Jews. And this is a process of otherization. So when you look at this study in terms of group behavior, they were, not, they were bypassing this plane where they were making somebody else into another by maintaining a secure group. 
Well, the question I would like to respond to the idea of security, not just domestication. Can I just, I just want to point out that in a way you could just be talking about tribalism and e even the kind of fanaticism that you get with sports fans, which I, I experienced firsthand and it's totally irrational and I assume that there is some evolved program for that. But, but that doesn't necessarily lead to, um, and, and you even see it between you know Obama supporters and, and uh, Romney supporters now, that doesn't necessarily have to become violent. And if we could, if we could have a world in which we still have fanatical tribalism and all sorts of bickering and fighting over, over uh, politics and sports and whatever, but without the violence, which I think is quite possible, then obviously that would be a better world. And there's no reason uh, that we can't achieve that. The, the two, those two programs, the violence and the tribalism, are not necessarily connected. They're two different things. They are, they are in group theory, and all, all, the, all the issues about group tend to disprove your hypothesis. Okay. I'm Fritz Kenzel. I'm a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. Uh, a little bit closer to the mic. Uh, I'd like to just question the, the issue of the conference. Is male-male competition, does it lead to war? Um, male, the uh, unconscious anxiety with, with male competition is envy and jealousy. Yes. Envy and jealousy. Envy is an intent to bust out someone's lights is to snuff out their flame. I can't stand it that you have it and I don't have it. Jealousy is you have more than I do. Uh, so I'm going to demote you. I'm going to pull you down. But neither of those are killing. Uh, <clears throat> the, um, the other issue is going from biology to humans. Uh, I was in a U.S. A medical center for federal prisoners in, in Missouri, and I had the most violent, mentally ill people. Um, I did a study on violent prisoners versus nonviolent prisoners. I had the violent, I had the prisoners stand in the center of a room, and I was me with my white coat uh, on. I said, "I'm going to take a step toward you. If you feel I'm too close, tell me to stop. Take a step." He goes, "Okay." Take another step. Stop. The body buffer zone or territoriality around the inmate was four times larger in the violent people than in the nonviolent people. So there's a pathological territoriality that I think may, if, if two are going down corridors at right angles and they bump into each other, there is an assault, there's violence. And uh, uh, the men would describe when I hit that point when they said, stop, they felt I was looming. They actually felt I was rushing. It was almost a hallucination. I had, I had stopped, but they felt almost as if I, like a zoom camera that, that I, was, <clears throat> I was looming at them. So there was a perception suddenly I was dangerous when in fact uh, I was not. And, <clears throat> so, and the, the final thing is, um, the um, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, you can make a case for a kind of paranoid group where the, the Wolfson, Bush, Cheney, and so on are whipping each other up in a kind of um, 
if you listen to Hitler's tone in, in these two or three hour rants uh, uh, that he had, a tone of almost ecstasy. There's a quality of almost erotic arousal uh, uh, that um, we're, we're, the French have the expression folie à deux, madness of two, or folie à trois, and so on, that this thing escalates, and it escalates to the point where they almost have to go to war. In other words, it's a, it's a psychotic, delusional state. And I guess that's what I want to <clears throat> just introduce the notion that war may be psychotic. And remember, they, they had a lot of help from supposedly rational liberals, like some of the pundits for the New York Times. <laughs> In going into Iraq. Um. Thank you. I, I appreciate your comments. Uh, my name is Ben White. I'm a, a, a psychotherapist in training. A little closer can, to the can mic. Can you hear me? A little speak closer here? to the mic. My name is Ben White. I'm a psychotherapist in training. And uh, I was, as I was listening, I was thinking of two incidences of male-male confrontation that I've had in the last uh, three days. I live in southern Vermont. And I walk with my dog every day across the road, and it's a dirt road on national forest land, and I had to let him off a leash. And he wandered up a corner the other day, and I heard a gunshot uh, ring out. And I rounded the corner, and there was a guy walking down the trail. He had a, a 22 pistol in his hand. And thankfully, my dog was fine. He was sitting there. and, and uh, my thought was, what the heck just happened? And he approached me, thankfully holstered his weapon, and, and had this very strange interaction with him, uh, where he proceeded to convince me that my dog was posing some sort of threat uh, to him. He perceived, and that I maintain, as I'm sure everybody else does, that my dog is the sweetest dog in the world. Uh, and his contention was, He's growl he was growling at me, man. And my thought was, well, maybe if you put that 22 away, he wouldn't growl at you. Um, and I was left with this sensation of, what the hell happened to this guy? What, what was it that caused that reaction? Um, I was very interested in your, in your comments uh, about you know, attributing these kinds of tendencies to respond to conflict in a particular way, maybe back to one event. And I think the application of, uh, of theories on the intergen intergenerational transmission of these responses to traumas. You, everybody, history is not without its traumas. And I'm very curious about how that, uh, how that has worked itself out in our, in our culture. And I guess if I could pose this in a question, uh, I would ask, what do, how would you classify our role as people having informed conversations uh, uh, about this sort of thing in furthering this conversation. And, and maybe as members of, of this world and this culture, and I don't, I'm not so deluded that I think that I can change the entire world, but uh, what do you think is our role? And I also just want to comment on, on how uh, I saw our, our, I hate to use you gentlemen as, as, a, as an example, but how I saw our little moment of, uh, of conflict there and just pose the question, how would that have worked itself out differently uh, had you two had different backgrounds with how to resolve conflict? Uh, so I'll open that, I guess, to anybody. <laughs> well, uh, there's a, a number of questions. Oh, go ahead. Um, oh, no, go ahead. No, 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 please. A number of possible answers. I mean, one is that it could be uh, if you two had very different 
these two individuals had very different backgrounds, it could have been a very different result. Uh, it would have been something that uh, it would have been seen. I, I did my field research in Puerto Rico, and one of the things that I saw was uh, conversations escalate into nearly violent arguments in ways that took me quite by surprise when someone said something to challenge the um, kind of the legitimacy of someone else speaking, uh, where to me it was just kind of normal back and forth. It was taken in a very different way, and it was suddenly pulling people apart. Um, I don't want to make too much out of that, but it was just a, a different kind of reaction than I was accustomed to, and there's infinite numbers of ways you could multiply it. And I think going back to one of the things Ed said before, that we have been in this conversation kind of conflating things from individual to males versus females uh, to cultures in war. And, and these, it's important to keep these things distinct. Uh, when we're talking about what we can do about it, if you're dealing at the individual level, I think that that's where you can make the, the impact. I, I don't think that, um, well, the, the idea uh, that you were talking about, about uh, psychopathy and war, there's an article in the journal Military Review, uh, which I, I can't remember the author's name, but it's something about the military utility of, or the utility of the military psychopath, where it is, stated quite clearly, not as an intellectual exercise, you've got to find these people because you can use them. Um, and then I went to my friend, a former drill sergeant, said, is there a process of finding these people in, in uh, basic training? And said, yes, there is. Um, so, you know, that's, that's part of the system. It's not why wars happen. So that's where you go from something like psychopathy to uh, war, not in, in an integral way, but uh, if you have psychopaths at the top, uh, and this is something that a lot of people have argued, but if you get to that point in our political system, pretty good chance you're a psychopath. You know, people have said that. Maybe then it does have uh, a factor. The, the idea of trying to discriminate these things is very important, but in a, you said this was fluid. That's what we're going for. <laughs> you know, we're going for fluid. So if you're writing a paper, you got to be non-fluid uh, and try and tamp it down. At the larger global level of war, um, some of the reactions, uh, when I was working on this some time ago, not the recent work on the Near East, but uh, a similar project looking globally, I told both my mother and my mother-in-law, neither of whom had any academic inclination whatsoever, that the point was that there was a time before war, if you're going just by the evidence, it's clear that there wasn't war uh, in these earlier records. Both of them came back with something like, you've got to be kidding me, you know, because they, they just knew there was war, and, and you know, as, as you do. And, and what I'm saying is, I could be wrong, but if I'm answering this kind of question, I'm saying let's look at evidence. And, and, it's, and for the Near East and for the earlier periods in Europe, it's clear that there is evidence at, in some places and in some times, and in other places and other times there isn't. And that you should take that as, as the facts and then try to make your theories accommodate those rather than what you know before you go into it from the way you've grown up in our society. So you've got to, I think for what you're doing, I think working at the individual level in Vermont, you know, I've got friends in Vermont and, and they complain about what they call the alternos, the, the new people move up who complain when they're spent 
their spent shells land on their roofs and make noise. You know, the, the, these guys just don't know how to do country living. So you may have to make an adjustment for the Vermont uh, local culture, too. I'm going to shoot my dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'd say the rational person would not risk life uh, in a confrontation with somebody who has a gun when you don't. So uh, the, the psychopath could be on either side. But a person, <laughs> a person with reasonable uh, judgment would be able to avoid conflict. Um, I am recalling the eth uh, ethnology studies in the 1960s that showed that social animals like wolves and uh, apes uh, do have the male uh, uh, establishment of hierarchy among males, but this number two guy will make a resignation move like this, exposing the, ju the jugular, which uh, stops the fight. And that's good for the species. And uh, I think of... What happens if they don't? Some get killed, a few. That's, that's the issue. You see, everybody talks about... But, it, it's not a, but the majority, the, the, re, the reflex works. The reflex is a signal. Yes. Which doesn't work for men and didn't work for men. So How do you know it doesn't work for men? Because we have evidence that it doesn't work. For well, I don't think we have evidence, but it, it goes. Yeah. <laughs> but don't turn your back on the person with the gun. Hi, everyone. Thank you um, for the talk. My name is Elizabeth Reed. Um, perhaps informed by past lectures here, I've chosen to go into a master's in social work program at NYU. Um, I have two reflections and a question. My first reflection is I was interested in the idea of sort of the contagion of the sociopathic leader and then the, sort of the contagion of war. Um, and going back to this 10,000 years of peace, that reminded me of Eden. So it's, I just wanted to bring, to of Eden. Like this idea of um, Eden and then the fall. And in that case, what is the fall? The fall is from a concept, a concept of war. Um, so I just want to bring that as we, bring our different concepts and different disciplines, I think there's some way that each of those inform perhaps the concepts we, we live out. Uh, second uh, reflection. Um, I guess I want to, I was, I wanted to declare my allegiance to the optimistic side um, along, with, along with John Horgan. And I want to, um, to the best of my ability, enlist anyone who wants to join us. Um, one, one of the things I think about is like a, a suicide, we, who here as a clinician has dealt with someone who has suicidal ideation? And how serious is suicidal ideation? What makes suicidal ideation dangerous? The ideation. Once again, the, the power of the concept. And how do you work with someone who has suicidal ideation? You create a, a survival plan, um, or what I might call a survival ideation. And I think that's really what you were talking about, about sort of what leads to war versus what leads to peace, whether or not we have ways to share our grain and all the rest of it. Um, this leads me to the question. We didn't talk about, I think, to answer you, what, what did these, in these 10,000 years of peace, what did they, um, who was the enemy? We talked about rise and fall in the population. Was the enemy not disease or how fragile human life was? Um, and I think maybe we've lost that. And one thing we didn't talk about now is how much we don't accept the idea of death. We've disowned death in our culture. We prolong life at all cost. And maybe because we've lost this value of death, is that related to war and how? 
I'd like to answer that because I was going to make a comment before and you have usurped my, my comment. <laughs> because it ties in with, with Ed's comment and I think it ties in with the whole notion of individuality also. And that is, and it also ties in with a moral education that we're talking at a certain level here, but we're not talking about the individual and the individual feelings and emotions that go on in everyday life. And it seems to me that that's a really important aspect because we are all vulnerable and we're all vulnerable in being alive among other humans. And that's a vulnerability that we don't, we don't, we're not really cognizant of. We don't let come into our uh, aliveness at all. And uh, it seems to me that that's a really important kind of realization. And the, the realization of our own death, too, is something It's tied to that. Um, and one thing that I wanted to bring out with respect to your comment, it has to do with the proliferation of guns in this country which simply exacerbates our vulnerability in being alive among other humans because we don't know what the hell another human is going to do to us, whether they have a gun in their pocket and when it's going to happen or whatever. And it just seems to me that that can't help in subliminal ways influence us in our everyday lives. When we, when we go, we hear about Aurora or when we hear about these things in Milwaukee or wherever it is, it can happen any place that somebody can pull a gun, that we're simply vulnerable and that's at an individual level. So in our present day lives, it seems to me our very much, uh, our, our, very, our fragility has, has been magnified in our here, especially here in, in America with the proliferation of guns, it seems to me. A related comment? Yes. There are 50 gun suicides a day in the United States and 38 murders. 50 suicides, mostly by gun owners. Interesting. We don't hear about that from the NRA, but apparently they keep their membership roster up <laughs> in other ways. Well, <laughs> if I could just uh, do one response on the idea of Eden, that I think is an appropriate point. Um, the area that uh, around uh, 3200 BC, um, there was a, the, the central uh, Templar region of, the, of central Jordan uh, was Megiddo. There was an enormous temple structure there, uh, completely unfortified like all the temple structures had been. And then the Egyptian settlements, which had been there for several hundred years, put up their walls. And Megiddo put up a wall uh, virtually the same moment. We can't even tell which came first. And uh, Megiddo was shortly thereafter abandoned. And we don't know whether it was attacked. It's only been partially excavated. But it was, they put up a wall, a terrible wall. <laughs> it, was, it was a most poorly constructed defensive wall that you could find anywhere because they'd never done it before. But one of the things that you see in the temple, which is really striking, is a completely without precedent in the whole area. There's a copper, I'm sorry, a bronze sword. There's never been a sword anywhere in this area. And now they've got a sword in their main temple. And then it's abandoned. And the reason I th think it's relevant to Eden is that Megiddo's the basis of uh, Armageddon. That's what the war of the end of the world is. And I think, in a sense, the world of peace already did end. 
at Megiddo. Armageddon happened in 3200 BC. When um, you were talking earlier, I was thinking, well, that's, I was thinking of the Bible, which of course is, seems, scholars seem to think um, uh, is based on um, experience or myths that occurred um, far more recently than uh, that, the period you're indicating. But you could also see Eden as that period. <laughs> okay, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm a, a literature professor. Uh, but I, I want to go back to uh, the uh, the question of which you really haven't um, focused on is social structure. You did it, um, Mr. Horgan did it initially when you asked us whether we thought war was um, inevitable or not, whether peace was possible among nations. And the description that um, uh, you gave us, Mr. Ferguson, about this period in the Levant uh, indicates that probably they weren't nations. They were tribal groups, cooperative <coughs> societies, and whatever. So my question really is, um, do you think it's possible to go beyond the nation state? Because I would argue that if you if you're stuck with the nation state, you're stuck with war. I, I disagree. Uh, so I, I know that, um, that there has been so Einstein and, uh, and other leading intellectuals of the 20th century after World War II thought that the only way to prevent this from happening in the future was to have a global government because nationalism inevitably would lead to war. But we see lots of relations between nations where there's not only um, no war, but there's but war is inconceivable. Uh, so between the United States and, um, and Canada, for example, what is remarkable today now is that war between Germany and France, I would say, is also inconceivable. Um, you know, maybe yeah, but think, I mean, you're, you've got a very small period of time. I know, where that's I know, true. but I, but I think it's significant that we can feel that way when uh, there was this horrific violence so recently, and when you look at, at the history, where they're, you know, they're always uh, at each other's throats. So. I'm hopeful because I see this kind of social change happening at the national level and international level so rapidly. What you have, you know, I think one of the most obvious kind of dumb refutations of the idea that that uh, war is at all biological is that you get the most warlike societies on Earth practically overnight turning into a bunch of pacifists, which you had with Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany. Now, those obviously were countries that were conquered, but you have other examples of uh, very warlike nations like Switzerland and uh, Sweden, which in the uh, the 18th century were, were feared uh, for their, their warlike ways suddenly uh, getting sick of war and saying we're not going to do this anymore and you know they've managed to maintain at least neutrality right through all the horrors of the uh, of the 20th century so I think there are demonstration proofs through history and around the world today that nations can live uh, peacefully together and I think that's the direction that human reason uh, points us in and the direction that any kind of reasonable interpretation of history leads us in and I think that's why we actually are uh, are doing it. I, I think but that the, uh, how, 
the issue of nation states is uh, what's happening now, you shouldn't assume it's going to keep going. Uh, things can change. But the, you look at South America, which people don't talk about because there's no wars going on, internal or external. But they've got all of these states. Um, Africa, most of the wars that have been going on recently are not between states, but somehow within states or around states or across states. Um, the, the nation state at present isn't really the war making unit in much of the world. Um, on your point of can we get past this, there's uh, uh, William Urey, Bill Urey, uh, is an uh, anthropologically trained conflict resolution guy, and he's, uh, he's got a book called Getting to Peace, and his main idea is that we can use these ideas of developing what he calls a third side of people standing outside of a conflict, pressuring people, belligerents, to solve it without violence, and also talking about the growing importance of horizontal networks that aren't part of the, the power pyramids that have characterized most of our until very recent history. And that they may be a way of, of moving in a different direction. Not, we're not going to go back to simple hunters and gatherers, um, but horizontal conflicts rather than these pyramidical structures, that's a possibility. May I pick up from a previous point uh, made about uh, concern about suicide? Um, I, have this concern uh, uh, emerging, uh, for example, from the statistic that for two years running, there were more of our troops committing suicide than lost in battle in Afghanistan. And I have read somewhere that um, half of the suicides are among uh, troops who have not seen battle, but I, I don't know if that's reliable. Not true, okay. It doesn't surprise me, but uh, the... Um, thought comes to me this way. The, the VA, the Veterans Administration, hired a thousand new psychologists and so on to treat people. But can they ask this question? That the, the mind has been changed by the training, not necessarily by the experience of killing, but by the training to be able to kill. And when a uh, soldier gets home, as uh, Grossman points out, we don't have troop ships anymore as we did after World War II where people got re-socialized and they stayed with the units until they got home, and et cetera. There are many factors. Uh, but suppose, you, suppose you're trained to kill and you're sent home and you find out that you are angrier at your spouse or your neighbor or the guy who cuts you off in traffic than you ever were at the designated enemy. H how do you deal with that? What's the way of going backwards? Now, are the VA psychologists going to be able to take up the issue with their, shall we say, their bosses? There are people in the VA, I give them credit for coining the phrase moral injury as a contributor to this uh, uh, maybe post-traumatic uh, experience leading to suicide and depression and so on, inability to fit in. But are we able to take psychiatric professionals and, and enable them to say, what you've done to these people uh, has to be prevented because it can't necessarily be cured? You mean as a kind of anti-war movement? No, it's that you, we have to take responsibility for the training that enables people to kill yeah. very easily, yeah. and then it leaves them suicidal in large numbers. That we own up to that. But then it's making them possibly less 
effective as soldiers. Um, and that's why I'm hoping to take the next step and just say, all this military, military training is wrong. It's just well, uh, someone traumatizing. You, someone said today that the military trainers, somebody up there, knows that psychopaths do very well, and we should cultivate that. Pure psychopath army. That's what we need. <laughs> Only heroes go. Be all that you can be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you good psychopaths. Hi, thank you very much for a great conversation and a lot of interesting points. My, <clears throat> I um, uh, would like uh, to point out that all here mostly like peaceful people. But let's um, talk about who is on the top of military complex and high military officials. If we look at these, um, no, for example, uh, as, um, as a game, they, produce, they invested a lot of um, energy and a lot of um, <clears throat> resources in producing new weapons and uh, they have the and when, when they look at these new um, uh, uh, technolo technological advances they probably uh, have um, uh, this feeling of pleasure and they want to use them they produce these toys they want to play with them and don't you and we have so many toys already that how we can stop them I don't I personally don't see the way and I would like to um, um, uh, I have one of example of one of the maybe the um, biggest players in this kind of games and Joseph Stalin who said the uh, that the death of one person is a tragedy and of million person is statistics so they don't see soldiers or even us as human beings they already on other level and uh, they could not as, as on Wall Street they also don't see us as people they see us as p potential for their for their, for gaining uh, for something gaining so you see society is so already divided on so many levels would it uh, what do you think is it um, of course, in maybe some time long ago, in, in when when it was much more simply and not divided on so many levels, maybe it was possible the so long time of peace. But is it possible today? Yeah. And how it's possible? What's the uh, real <laughs> instruments of this? I think we've been we've been talking about psychopaths. We've been talking about uh, people who are happy to go to war. And you just mentioned Joseph Stalin, and and uh, I, you know, I voted for Barack Obama, and I, I probably will again. But I'm not happy about it. I, I think he's a decent, obviously extremely intelligent person, but um, he. Um, is carrying out drone assassinations where he knows he will kill civilians. And that has now become US policy, has become accepted. And uh, I think that this is a uh, war crime. 
And uh, George Bush also carried out war crimes, and he was elected to a second term when it was apparent that uh, he was carrying out immoral military pos uh, policies. So this isn't something that we can foist off on leaders or people in the military-industrial complex or psychopaths. It's something that we all, in a democracy like ours, bear responsibility for. And I think we have to examine what it is in us that allows us to, because we collectively do, um, perpetuate these attitudes that make it so easy to go to war uh, in the future. It's not the crazies on the fringes. Um, it's, it's really all of us. I agree, and I, I'm glad to report, though, that the people who operate the drones are also having stress syndromes because they view these uh, people on television screens for days and weeks, and then they kill them. Right. And they're, they're experiencing some of this uh, post-traumatic stuff. They have to identify with the people, then they have to push, push the button. I would just also ask again something about how we get to this better place that you keep envisioning and how we do it without some kind of moral education that involves some kind of deep self-searching to find out who the hell we are and, and just uh, what it means to live among other humans in a peaceful way. I, I think that there's a lot that needs to be done. It's not some simple process. I think a moral education is really quite essential. I don't know well, whether I, the rest, are, and that involves really delving into feelings, as you're saying, in terms of fear and threat, et cetera. The, this is going back to Ed's point about the different levels of analysis of what we're talking about, and I think that this is, this is certainly true um, at an individual level. Um, the, the focus on the individual, even the, the gender differences of what it means to be a man uh, or a woman, um, that this is something that has importance for our notions of uh, war in our society. Joshua Goldstein, I'll, I'll just mention as someone who's written about uh, war and gender and has a, a new book out on fighting for peace, uh, both, I mean, these are, these are books of people who are interested in the subject. I disagree with him on some things, but he's really on the mark there. But to, to go back also to your point is that I, I know generals like to, uh, people like toys. I don't think it's so much playing with them, though. I was at a, a meeting yesterday on uh, counterinsurgency, which is something that I also work on because the military has really been trying to get anthropology, to mine anthropology for counterinsurgency efforts, and it's a real problem for the discipline of anthropology. <clears throat> and this guy's a history professor at uh, West Point, but a dissident, and he says that counterinsurgency is dead and that we now know that it doesn't work. It's dead. and. Um, my question was, uh, I'd like to know that it's really most sincerely dead uh, because of what it's doing for to anthropology. And then he said that even though it doesn't work, um, and when he's talking to field officers, they'll listen to them, but general staff, you cannot criticize the idea because it is doctrine. And the reason it's doctrine is that in the military and the Marines, this protects their budget. As they are pivoting to Asia, it's the Navy and the Air Force. And the only way the military can protect its budget is 
counterinsurgency. So even though they know that it doesn't work, I mean, I know it's a shocking idea that the Pentagon could support a program that doesn't work just to protect a budget, but um, seems to be happening. And, and that, Seymour Millman, one of my mentors from long ago, wrote about uh, the, uh, the, the military economy, uh, just drilled it into me. He says it's the bureaucratic imperative, protect your or expand your budget. Um, that's what's the important thing. And the budget is hinged on the, the concept of successful counterinsurgency. It's not true. It doesn't work. But they're going to defend it. And this is why I say you've got to look at the leaders. And when someone in politics, either Obama or Romney or anybody else says, let's go take it to the generals and see what the generals have to say, the generals are protecting their budgets. They're the last people to ask because they're there to protect the Army and the Marines. They're the, their enemy isn't the Taliban, it's the Navy and the Air Force. That's the peace you know, <laughs> Well, yeah. Uh, so this, this is, you've got to look at the interests of people in power. So I, I, I agree with you, although the playing with it, they can play with it in peacetime, too. I mean, George Bush landing on the aircraft carrier, you can do that. But it's, their budgets are very important. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you.